So we had circled, I think at the time it was October 1st, and I was laid off at the end of July. I thought that that would be enough time to do all of the things that needed to be done to launch this campaign. And I, I actually think we got pretty close. We launched on October 16th. So that was the first thing I did. I set a goal and said I was going to hold myself accountable to a certain time frame. And then I just started hitting the phones. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That Worked. I'm excited for this week's episode. I'm joined by Jill Apgar. Jill is the founder of Cocoa Beans. Cocoa Beans is a luxury children's brand transforming bedtime into peaceful magic. Cocoa Beans 100% silk crib sheets create icky-free, whimsical bedding and sleepwear. Jill was named to the Entrepreneurista 100 list and has been featured alongside Cocoa Beans in Us Weekly, Business Insider, and Good Housekeeping. I learned a lot in this episode. Jill started Cocoa Beans from a crowdfunding campaign, and I had no idea what it takes to make a successful campaign. Spoiler here, it's not easy. We talked about how strategic she was in building her career in general and how she took the personal challenge of managing her daughter's curly hair into launching a full-blown company from it. One of the most interesting things for me is how she used in-person events to drive digital sales. In a world where everyone is trying to compete online, there's an underserved need for in-person events. It's an area that I'm personally very excited about, and I learned a lot as she took us through her events. So with that, Let's jump into the show. Jill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, we're excited to have you. And then Jen Little is also co-hosting with us. Jen, I'm excited. I'm back. You are back. Yes. You, you've made you the have first kept me. cut. <laughs> you've made the first cut. We go by 52 cuts, so she's got a good chance of go. going on the next one for sure. Amazing. Conversion rate's high. <laughs> Jill, tell us a little bit about Cocoa Beans. Yeah, so Cocoa Beans is a luxury children's brand. We source the world's softest, most luxurious fabrics to create what we call icky-free bedding and sleepwear. We're best known for our silk crib sheets. They were a product driven out of a need that I had for my daughter and her incredibly beautiful curly hair. And we've since grown to offer a full suite of bedding products. So we offer crib sheets, pillowcases, pajamas, and our most recent launch is a silk blanket. So was this started from a crowdfunding? We did crowdfund to, to fund our very first purchase order. We launched a crowdfunding campaign. Tell us about that process. Yes. Okay. First, I'll just preface this by saying it was hands down the hardest thing I've ever done. In July of 2020, I was laid off from my corporate job and I had developed this product for my daughter about 18 months before. I said, I have this product. I see this white space in the market, but we are not by any means, independently wealthy, how am I going to start up this business? And I hit the ground running, talked to pretty much anyone who would take a meeting with me who had anything to do with having started their own business and unanimously was start cheap, fail fast. If you can do crowdfunding, try it. 
because it serves as this platform to not only solve your immediate problem of capital, but also offers a sort of testing ground. If you can reach your goal, you can somewhat prove that there's at least some product market fit. How does that work? Do they take equity within the company or what does that look like? So there are different platforms, each with their own sort of rules. But I selected a platform called iFundWomen, which operates very similar to Kickstarter or Indiegogo. All of them operate pretty similar in terms of fees. So you raise the money through these people that contribute and the platform takes a fee in addition to the credit card fees. So it winds up being all in between iFundWomen platform fees and the Stripe credit card fees, 7%-ish. But iFundWomen operates a little bit different from Kickstarter and Indiegogo in that you get those funds immediately. So when you launch a Kickstarter and you say, I want to raise $50,000, you only get the $50,000 if you hit that mark. So if you raise $49,500, you get nothing iFundWomen operates a little differently in that as soon as that transaction happens, the funds are deposited to your business account. One, that felt like less risk. And two, at least at the time, iFundWomen was a small team and I felt like I had their undivided attention. They knew my name. They knew what what my business was. I felt like I could really stand out and have an impact within their community And that wound up being a wise decision for me. That's an amazing story. Does that work as in, is this a loan or what does that look like? It's not a loan. You are essentially marketing your business. So I sent out an email to every person that I had met in my professional life, personal life. If I had spoken to you in the last call it 12 years, you were on that email distro. So you market it, you bring the customers to contribute to your cause. And so in my case, I was pre-selling my silk crib sheets. So I said, you buy them now at this price. At the time, they were $98. And when I launched officially the following year, they were 108 So you got a little bit of a discounted price and you were helping me because most of the people that contribute to a crowdfunding campaign are people that you know. Gotcha. The crowdfunding is based around, okay, help this person go. But as a result, you can also get, whether it's a discount on the actual product or uh, whatever that may be. Okay. People run them several different ways, but the way I chose to run my campaign was a presale. And then I had a tier that was like, a founding member of the Cocoa Beans family, and mm. you can choose to contribute $1,000. And I had a landing page on my website, which in hindsight is so embarrassing, that first website. But we can talk about that <laughs> later. But I had all of those people listed as just um, honoring their commitment to me and their belief also in like me. a first buy-in, too. You get your first list of customers. Absolutely. Email list. Those are some of my best customers even today, and they've stuck with me and have followed me along each product launch, and it proves to be really helpful. That's really cool. Jen, you'll probably appreciate this. Um, I have invested in a crowdfunding before, and it was for the money gun. Um, Oh, (laughs) 
my gosh. Okay. It, it, it was a gun that shot money. And awesome. This, yeah. And this Who is, doesn't need one of those. Exactly. And it was for the sales floor. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. And yeah, you live and you learn. I never got the money gun. And so that's a yes. little bit of the risk that you take when you're pre-ordering through something like a crowdfunding campaign. And you see it with Kickstarter more because it's a bigger platform. But that is ultimately the risk yeah. that you take. In my case, I had already developed the product. I had a manufacturer. I personally would never attach my name to something that I didn't think I could actually Yeah, produce. you hear about those stories yep. of crowdfunding or donating to some type of source that doesn't end up doing anything, mm -hmm. you know, which is really interesting and so interesting for you to say, I worked with this group specifically because of X, Y, and Z. Yep. And I, I think that is an awesome story, too. Yeah, it's one of those things where uh, in doing the research, I saw that you mentioned specifically that it was 30 to 45 days of just an all-out blitz, all-out sales and marketing blitz. Walk us through that. What does that look like? So you set a goal. I set a goal of $25,000 and you set a deadline for yourself. And I had done research that suggested about a month is the standard time for a campaign to be successful because any longer than that, people get bored. Any shorter than that, you're not able to really access your target. So for 30 days, all I talked about, all I thought about was hitting this campaign. And I will say the first 10, getting to the first 10,000 was pretty easy. I felt like that's like the tried and true, like the friends that you knew were mm -hmm. going to be with yeah. you no matter what. And then once I needed to move beyond that is really when it became challenging. And I had no background in marketing. I legitimately thought I was going to like put up my Instagram profile, stand up this website, and the people were going to come. I genuinely believed it. It seemed like online. Yes. Mm -hmm. Especially in the world of social media. Yes. And this was during COVID where everyone was on their phone. And I was like, Surely I will have 100,000 followers in no time at all. Sure. <laughs> Turn the light switch on. I don't even think I have 3,000 today. <laughs> like, reality sets in pretty quick. And it's something that I tell when I'm sharing advice with younger entrepreneurs who are thinking about crowdfunding. I'm like, please don't do it without a legitimate marketing plan down to the day. What are you going to be talking about for each day of that yeah. campaign? Because so much of the anxiety came from... What am I going to talk about on each and every day? Because I had none of that laid out. So that wound up being an important sort of learning lesson and just the preparation required for something like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. What would you recommend somebody do? Is it email blast? Is it posting on social? Is it meeting people in person? Is it getting other people that you know that are really connected to share this? What is that like? If somebody's like, I'm going into this, what is the best way that they can maximize this? So I think the first thing is making sure that you have enough time. So being realistic with your expectations. And I think this can absolutely be done within 90 days. But if you're at day 90, counting down to your campaign launching on day zero, the first thing I say is start talking to everyone you know about this idea. Because the worst thing that could happen is for your friends and family and network to hear about it for the first time on the day your campaign launches. So what I did was I told people that I was working on this. So they were anticipating it. And you sort of drum up some of that excitement. And people need to hear things multiple times. I think that as a business owner, sometimes I get in my own head and I start to 
quote unquote, annoy myself because <laughs> I feel like I'm only talking about this one thing. But I think about my business 100% of the time. I'm lucky if my customers think about me 1% of their time. Yeah. And it's the magic number of seven in this like, yes. marketing world that you have to hear and see a message seven times before it even resonates with Absolutely. you at all. So that's super interesting how that translates. Okay. So I want to go back. Where did your career start out just in general? Yeah. So I started my career at Abercrombie & Fitch. I moved here from the East Coast, lifelong East Coast girl. I signed a two-year contract to work for A&F in their corporate merchandising program. And I haven't looked back. So here we are 15 <laughs> years later. Um, but I started in that merchandising program. And I studied finance and economics in college and sort of found my way into fashion by accident. I cold called the recruiter at Abercrombie during the junior my junior year of college. And he then told me that he would be on campus in the fall, which is sort of how I got my job there. But my guess is when you started at Abercrombie, that was kind of when it's in its heyday. Yeah, I started in 2008. So it was probably like just past peak where they were still riding the coattails of some of that ops success. And then, you know, 2008 is really when things started to turn. In 2009, I remember the first round of layoffs started and that just sort of snowballed. And in hindsight, I feel like those layoffs have followed me my entire career. There's sort of that shadow that you're lurking in the in the background. And that really started right out of the gates So something I got pretty used to. But I spent four years at Abercrombie and I knew that if I wanted to make a career in merchandising, I would probably have to gain experience outside of Abercrombie because at the time, though the Abercrombie merchandising program was intense and amazing and they trusted you with pretty significant responsibility right out of the gate, it had a heavy emphasis on product and design and less on financial rigor. And so I knew that if I wanted to make a career in merchandising, I would have to find experience elsewhere. And I set my sights on Victoria's Secret Pink. And this was at the heyday of VS mm -hmm. Pink. So they had just achieved their first billion-dollar sales year. And this was the days of Ashley Tisdale. And, and the brand was riding high, and I wanted to work there. So I applied, I interviewed, and ultimately was passed over because they wanted someone with a little bit more financial experience. So I wound up taking a job at Limited Stores. I worked at Limited Stores for about a year, and I worked in their, I was managing their dresses division, which was a huge departure from my job at ANF. At ANF, I was managing women's sweaters. This was a highly visible category, huge volume driver for the business. So there was a, a lot of scrutiny. My job at Limited was the exact opposite of that. I was in dresses. It was a much smaller category, not a ton of visibility. And I was able to sort of pursue my curiosities and creativity and make mistakes in terms of business strategy without those eyeballs on my business. And I wound up befriending the vice president of e-commerce at the time, who proved to be pretty pivotal in my career. We'll get there in a second. But she wound up taking me under her wing and allowed me to pursue a lot of those strategic curiosities. And I was there for about a year. And another position opened up at Victoria's Secret Pink. So, of course, I called the recruiter and said, not only do I want this job, I am the perfect candidate for this job. And 
spoiler alert, I got the job. So I wound up moving over to Pink and what a ride. I was managing their lounge business, which was sweatpants and sweatshirts. It was the largest division in apparel. There was consecutive quarters of double-digit growth. So really an exciting time to join the business. I was able to learn, I guess it was more about growth beyond that of an individual contributor and growing into a leader managing not only my direct reports, but also a large cross-functional team and refining the art of influence, if you will. So for the people that are unfamiliar, because the merchandising role is a really cool role, what is that? If you can give kind of that overview of what the merchandising role is. Yeah, merchandising at its core is the business of fashion. And you'll hear it referred to sometimes as the hub of the wheel. And so we work with cross-functional partners. So everyone from concept to designers to product manufacturers, to in-season planners and allocators getting product where it needs to go in the store, to hindsighting what worked and didn't work in the business. So it's really, truly an amalgamation of all of those components. And typically in most businesses, the merchants are driving the business strategy for a category. Gotcha. I knew it was a fun role. I was not smart enough to get that job. I wanted that job <laughs> at Abercrombie in particular. So you went to Limited. And was this to round out kind of that financial part? Yep. It was 100% the stepping stone I needed to take in order to get that financial rigor under my belt. So things like managing inventory levels with your planner, um, understanding how big you should plan a season really digging into hindsight and the analytics yeah. behind the product. And so that was a muscle I sort of needed to really work in order to prove that I was valuable to a, a company like Pink. Gotcha. So you moved into this role, got that, moved into where you wanted to be. Yep. Cold called the recruiter again, which I love. And then... That's uh, the part I wanted to chat about. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead, dive in. There's yeah. so much... I love this common theme that I'm hearing from your guests, other podcast guests about, I wanted this thing. So I called to the person who was doing the thing and said, this is why we should talk. And that's such a skill that most people who aren't in sales, I mean, quite frankly, mm -hmm. are scared to exercise. So that I love that you said that you did that twice now, yeah. which is amazing. I think it comes from a place truly of being naive and just being so laser focused on something that the fear, I don't even give myself a chance to feel scared, truly. I love that. Because I think if I did spend too much time thinking about it, I would never do it. Totally. I love it. It's just a bias for action. And it is true. So if I'm here, you're so locked in. It was, this is what I want. This is how I'm going to get it in any way that I have to do it, which that's a really hard move to move from, you know, going in that role to taking a step back and to take two steps forward. Most people won't do that. It's more kind of here's the next uh, I'm being opportunistic. The next good job. It pays 20,000, 30,000 more. I'm going to go jump into this as opposed to saying I'm going to come over here, round this out to get the big step up to fast forward a little bit. What was that like going from an individual contributor to a leader? It was very tricky evolution, and I was 
grateful that I've had amazing direct reports along the way who have trusted me enough to be honest with me, who have really held me accountable when I've done things wrong and also been my biggest cheerleaders when they've liked what I've done. And I feel like I've always stuck to a certain set of values. I believe in leading with kindness. I'm never going to be mean in my leadership style. And so that leading with those core values definitely helped me along the transition from out of that individual contributor role into more of a leadership role. I'm going to ask a question. Might be a little controversial. Yeah. How do you deal? How do you manage somebody that is just purposely going against the grain when you're leading with kindness, just in general? Yeah. So I've been fortunate where I haven't had to really deal with that a ton. But when you're leading someone who is, for lack of a better word, difficult, keeping an eye on the end goal. What is it that we are trying to achieve together? And as hard as it is, leaving the emotion out of it. And there have been times where I've done that well and times where I haven't, but just keeping the emphasis and focus on what is it that we're trying to achieve. At the end of the day, we have a mutually aligned upon goal. How do we figure that out together? And sometimes just saying like, how can I help you get to this goal? putting myself out there and making myself available. Yeah. So so if I'm hearing you, it's we both are going after this goal. There's no point for us to just be butting heads on this. So how do we align towards accomplishing that goal? And then, I mean, the reality is at that point is if, if somebody's, if you've done everything that you just said and somebody's still like, mm, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not bothering. And knowing when to walk away. Right. And knowing when to say this conversation is no longer productive And that's that. Leaving it at that. Leaving it at that and walking away. And then maybe it's the next day or a week later coming back and approaching it again. Or if you are, where I feel like I've dealt with this the most is where neither party is the final decision maker. And so knowing, you know what, this is a waste of time. Let's grab that actual decision maker and let's move on. What I love about that is, which I think is key, is like try to work it out first and then, um, okay, if we can't work it out, then we need a third party to walk us through this because we're not getting this on our own. Which sometimes, you know, I had this conversation earlier and if you think about it, you're probably on the same side of the issue 80% of the way, Mm -hmm. but it's the 20% that's just so hard to, it's like you're almost just both kind of focused on one thing and then you get somebody else like, oh yeah, we're actually thinking the same thing. This makes total sense. And not being afraid to, if I was the sole, the final decision maker in this situation, not being afraid to just say, I hear you, I value that point of view, but we're going to take this direction. And I hope that you can accept that. Move on, case closed. Absolutely. So as you're kind of growing with Victoria's Secret, when was it throughout this process where you're like, I've got to start a business? Well, By accident, like a lot of things in my life, sort of by accident, I was laid off from my role at Victoria's Secret in July of 2020. All Brands laid off 800 people, and I was among them. And I was at this place where the prospects at my level in retail were not abundant. And I was fortunate enough to be in a position where I didn't immediately have to solve for a new job. And my husband was super supportive and said, Jill, if you want to pursue this for yourself, 
I 100% stand behind you. And I had always had sort of an entrepreneurial itch. I just didn't know how that would ever manifest. I never thought, I wouldn't say that I was the type of kid that was like, one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to have my own business. But I've been creative and entrepreneurial from the beginning. So I guess that part wasn't as much of a surprise. I alluded to this earlier, but I don't think I thought that hard about what the end goal would be. I thought, this is what's in front of me today, and I think this is the best decision that I can make today, and I'm just going to go do that. Because again, I think if I had really thought through it, I probably would have been too scared. So what did you do? How did you start diving into it? Yeah, so the first thing I did, and I'll never forget this, is I sat down with my husband and I said, okay, we're going to launch this pre-sale campaign on X date. So we had circled, I think at the time it was October 1st, and I was laid off at the end of July. I thought that that would be enough time to do all of the things that needed to be done to launch this campaign. And I I actually think we got pretty close. We launched on October 16th. So that was the first thing I did. I set a goal and said I was going to hold myself accountable to a certain time frame. And then I just started hitting the phones. And I mean, by phone, I mean email. (laughs) Hmm. But really just reaching out to anyone I knew that had started a business, anyone that I knew who had any experience in manufacturing, because I knew that that would be a pretty significant hurdle to clear is finding who would produce the garments or the products. And yeah, from there, just I'll never forget. It was along that journey that someone gave me the advice of don't ever leave the meeting without asking for two or three recommendations for additional people to talk to. So then that tree just sort of grew very organically and just was really curious. And I feel so lucky at the time in which I started my business because it was at the height of COVID. There were so many virtual resources available for women in particular starting new businesses. So I attended countless free webinars and people were so generous with their time, willing to take a half an hour, 45 minutes here and there. And I'm not sure if I were to repeat that today, that those resources would still be available. So there's a lot of luck involved. I have a question. Did the product itself come to you just organically? This is the problem I need to solve now. Or did it go through phases of business plans and ideas of a, of a company? Um, secret. I, I don't have a business plan. <laughs> I, I, that's funny, but it's, it's the truth. So the product is a result of a problem I had. So my husband and I adopted our daughter, Cora, in 2018, and she was born with a full head of thick, curly hair, beautiful hair, but she was sleeping on normal cotton crib sheets and waking up with crazy knots. And there's not much you can do to care for a newborn's hair at that age. It's not like you could fill it with product. I couldn't put a bonnet on her. Simultaneously, I had started sleeping on silk pillowcases for my own hair and skin, Mm -hmm. and I was loving the results that I was seeing. And I sort of had that light bulb moment. Oh, I will just buy her silk crib sheets and my problem will be solved. But they were really hard to find. And when I did find them, I didn't either resonate with the brand or I didn't like the aesthetic of them. And I was complaining about this to a friend who was like, Jill, you do this for a living. You are a merchant who takes product and makes it and gets it to customers. And I said, you're right. That is what I do for a living. So I made some phone calls and wound up sourcing a fabric, had some samples made here locally in Columbus using a crib sheet pattern that we found on Google. Over time, refined the fit. I worked with 
a small batch manufacturer here in Columbus. They're amazing. They were so helpful. Got the fit perfect. I had solved my problem, but alas, I went back to work. And I thought, great, I've solved my problem. Maybe one day this will turn into a business, but probably not right now. So then fast forward to July 2020 when I was laid off. I had done that product development and that research and also, by the way, proved that the product would last because I had been using it in real time Mm -hmm. for all of those months. Yeah. So you built this for yourself. You weren't even planning to start a business when this first started. Correct. I sort of knew that maybe one day it could, if I had this problem, maybe other people had this problem and of course they turn it into (laughs) a business. But yeah, I had put that all on ice when I went back to work. I think I told you when we were chatting on the phone a couple weeks ago or a week ago now, my son, who's now two almost this month, who cannot do their hair. No. Forget it. I mean, he, as soon as he sees me pull like the brush out, just loses his mind, Mm -hmm. doesn't. But to your point, if you just had the pillowcase or the sheet that does the work for you, not does the work for you, but keeps your work intact instead of just overnight. It's so helpful. It is. That's quite amazing. That is the sweetest age. Uh, 24 months. At least for me, we we like that. (laughs) And then two hits and and they have all sorts of opinions. We'll see. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely, I'll get back to you on that. Having a two-year-old son is way different than a daughter, I think, for sure. But I hear that. I'll get back to you. Yeah. <laughs> so what were some of the biggest challenges that you've had as you're growing this? Well, being a first time small business owner has been a challenge just because I I don't know what I don't know. And I've been genuinely pleasantly surprised at how open and generous the founder community is. There's so many resources and everyone, for the most part, is willing to help each other. But just not knowing what to do next has been probably the biggest like macro challenge. And then there have been smaller specific challenges along the way, like financing it. How do we pay for the inventory? Because we're an inventory heavy business. So we need to put all that capital up front before we sell it. So fine tuning things like cash flow. I also launched my business and started advertising during probably like the worst possible time to start advertising on social media during the iOS update of 2021. <laughs> and so you watch the graph of like customer acquisition costs going up and to the left and your conversions are going down. That's not what you want to see. <laughs> so figuring out how to right size that, in our case, we wound up leaning heavily into organic and word of mouth and things like soliciting reviews and providing rewards for those reviews and more organic channels of marketing and then raw material costs going up. And I had to find a new manufacturer because I felt like if I don't, I didn't have a business or at least not one that was profitable. So there have been those more specific challenges along the way. Tell us a little bit more about that organic marketing. What yeah. When you say, how are you doing that? What's proven effective? How are you doing it? How did you kind of go and guess and check on a lot of these things? Yeah. The single most effective channel for Cocoa Beans is in person. So even though we're a digitally native business, I've done pop-up events in the Columbus area. And even when I don't convert on a conversation, when a customer comes into my pop-up booth, they hear about my brand. They tell someone else about my brand. They follow us on social media. And so that 
it's sort of that flywheel starts moving. And so though most of my transactions happen digitally, there's so much value in that in-person connection in so many ways. So I just shared with you, like they share with someone else. So there's that word of mouth component. There's also the content creation. Some of my most engaging pieces of content on social have been just sharing what the pop-ups look like, videos of people interacting at the pop-ups, videos of the product at the pop-ups. So that in-person piece of the business has proven to be much more valuable and was probably the biggest surprise in terms of my marketing efforts. I would have never guessed. tangible too, right? So you have yes. it in hand. You You're can holding touch it, it, touching it, feel it, exactly. see how it would work. And the storytelling piece, it's a chance for you to connect with a customer to for them to really understand who I am, why I developed this product, and to feel the product. I mean, the product in some cases speaks for itself. Like yep. You touch the pajamas and they're so soft, so luxurious. And then you they probably see a mom beelining to you in your pop-ups. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I love that. So I would have never guessed this in a million years uh, that that would have driven even just the uh, whether it's newsletter signups or Instagram followers or whatever that may be. That's really interesting. So how do you prep for these pop-ups? What does that look like? Is this at, you know, I'm going to say random things like the Columbus Art Fest or is this you're renting out? one of the buildings in Short North or something like that? What does that look like? Yeah. So my first pop-up was actually in collaboration with the Columbus Fashion Alliance. And that was another sort of lucky break. We had a space at Easton for eight weeks during holiday season. And so I learned so much about in-person selling. And at the time, our product assortment was very narrow. This was holiday of 21. So I was only selling silk crib sheets and silk pillowcases. And bedding is a tough sell in person because it's just not the type of thing that you necessarily buy on an impulse. It's usually something that's a little bit more planful and stems from a specific need versus that impulsive, oh, I want it, I'm going to buy it moment. And so I learned a lot about that. I learned about staffing. I learned about how to tell my story in a way that is effective in the, call it 60 seconds you have to interact with a customer in person to catch their attention. So that was the first pop-up I did. And since then, I've done the Dublin market, which actually happens right here at Bridge Park. That's been probably our most productive market. Grandview Hop in mm-hmm. Grandview yep. has been another really successful market for us. That's really cool. I would have never guessed taking kind of that offline and how that can increase your kind of your online presence just in general. Would you ever open a retail store now with that eight-week experience and all everything that you're doing in person? Or is that a different beast? Absolutely. I would love to open a brick-and-mortar store. I think I see it more doubling as a showroom and office space. So mm-hmm. a little bit less traditional, strictly retail. But yeah, I would absolutely love to open a, a brick-and-mortar store. I think that brick-and-mortar is by no means dead. Customers love to touch and feel product, especially something like a textile. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I like the Bonobos experience. The Bonobos experience is awesome. This is why I buy 99% of everything I, I own from Bonobos. <laughs> I was going to say that came full circle. That makes total sense. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Because well, it I can sense. get everything, I can knock it all yeah. out, and then I'll come back in a year and I'll do the same thing over again. <laughs> yeah. But for shopping for children, though, that is, you are intently or intently going out and getting things for your children. Mm-hmm. 
or baby registries. You are intently adding things sure. to a registry. So when you're out shopping at, let's say, Easton, and you're going around, I need a baby gift. That makes so much sense. Or I'm expecting, or my child needs this. And yep. Seeing it there makes so much sense. Yep. And if we can get on a registry, that is the holy grail because it almost guarantees a conversion at some point mm-hmm. in a customer's journey. Amazing. So what comes next for you? What's next? We just launched our newest product category, the blankets, which I think will definitely help juice some of that gifting conversions. I see the product assortment as pretty well-rounded for now, and I want to just be the best at bedding and pajamas and really grow those two categories and take it one day at a time. I love it. If you can have a conversation with your younger self, what would that conversation be? What advice would you give your younger self? Gosh, I love this question so much. I think it's progress over perfection. And just remembering that moving one foot in front of the other is better than waiting for something to be perfect. I think Joe, my husband, actually shared a a quote with me from Reid Hoffman that if you're not embarrassed by your first product, you waited too long to launch it. (laughs) But just that can be applicable to so many scenarios. Just go for it. You're your worst critic. No one's paying as much attention to you as you think they are. Just go for it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Jill, thanks for coming on today. Thank you this so much for excellent. having me. This is so fun. Absolutely. Love it. I hope you enjoyed Jill and I's conversation. I think in-person events are going to make a big comeback and will get stronger and stronger in the coming years. If you want to learn more about Jill, you could find her on LinkedIn and Instagram in the show notes. Also, if you like this episode, you could find me on LinkedIn to let me know. And if you really want to support the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is very much appreciated. Thanks for listening, and I'll see everybody next week. 